Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Ye Podcast. This is your host, Chris Ye, and I am joined today by my old friend, Teju Ravilochan, who is one of the co-founders of the Unreasonable Institute, now Uncharted, and now also the co-founder of a fantastic organization called Gather For. And Teju, I want to thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to be on. It was such a pleasure to reconnect with you recently. And then to have you agree to actually come on and speak with me was truly a wonderful thing. Well, I'm so happy to be here, Chris, and always so good to connect with you. So I'm grateful for the opportunity, too. Well, let's begin by helping people understand a little bit about you. You are a very famous social entrepreneur. You've won many awards, been named Forbes 30 Under 30, spoken before audiences all around the world, touched millions of lives. And I know you're a very modest person, and you would never say it that way, but I wanted to make sure I said it that way. Can you tell folks a little bit about how you came to social entrepreneurship? It sounds like it's something that really began when you were a child and, and developed over time. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an interesting story, and I suppose it's going to sound simpler and neater than, a, than it actually was in real life. Um, but I guess a big part of what brought me to the kind of work that I'm doing is the fact that um, my parents are immigrants from India. And uh, growing up, I got to hear a lot about their lives growing up in India. Um, they were not, they never went, went to bed hungry. They never you know, struggled to meet their basic needs, but they, they grew up relatively modestly. Um, my dad is the son of uh, a teacher and uh, his mother had a fifth grade education and then dropped out of school, which was common for women in India at the time in order to attend to household duties. And, and, um, and my mother's father passed away when she was young and, um, and her mother um, faced mental illness and so wasn't available to care for her. So she lived with relatives, with her uncle. And so they, they grew up very modestly and so, you know, growing up, I heard about, about how my dad dreamed of living in a place of opportunity, living in a place where he had access to more books, to a ping pong table, to, um, to you know, where his children could learn anything that they wanted to and, and become anything that they wanted to. And of course, that's the American dream. That's the promise of the U.S. Um, and so they came here and, and, and they also would take us uh, my sisters and me to India for visit visits with relatives. And on those visits, it was so abrupt and jarring for me to witness inequality um, juxtaposed, you know, just really visible. You, you see people who are begging right alongside tremendous displays of wealth in India. And it really affected me. And it sort of made me wonder from an early age, why the world is like this and how, how we can simply allow it to be that way. Um, and so there, you know, there's, there's many other parts of the story, but I think it was an awareness always that there is this immense inequality and uh, that exists all around us. Um, that is part of what inspired me to, to try to understand what role I can play in, in, in serving the emergence of a more equitable world. So there you are, you have this desire to bring about a more equitable world. And this is something that dates back to your childhood. And you're growing up, I believe, in the Denver area. Is that right? Correct. In Colorado. Mm -hmm. And then you eventually go on to, as so many do, to Boulder and the University of Colorado. And how did the time at the university help play into this social entrepreneurship? Did you go in knowing you wanted to be a social entrepreneur? Did you have a careful plan? Is it something <laughs> that emerged? Uh, it definitely wasn't a careful plan. I didn't even know what a social entrepreneur was, let alone an entrepreneur. I had this idea that may may still to some extent be true, but that the business is sort of a selfish and greedy institution. And um, I didn't want to have anything to do with entrepreneurship or, or business when I started university. Um, I wanted to be a physicist. And I my you know starting major was in physics. And shortly afterward, I added international affairs because it was always active and alive for me that I did want to do some sort of international equity at work, but I didn't exactly know how. And so, you know, I just, I just, as many people do, experimented in, in university. Um, and I think it was through friendship, through travel, 
and through you as a unique set of experiences that I'm happy to go more into in university that just gave me more exposure to the inequity that that I began to learn about in my childhood um, that made me wonder what role I can play. And that's sort of what led me to social entrepreneurship. So I would definitely like to hear about those experiences in college, because clearly you mentioned the childhood experiences of traveling through India. Boulder is a very different place. Yeah. Tell me about how this played out. Yeah, absolutely. So Boulder, Boulder is, is a special place. It is not a place of obvious inequity. Um, I think there's a, a fair degree of homogeneity in terms of class and race. Um, and, you know, it's a place of, of wealth and affluence. And um, it's also a place in a beautiful natural setting. Um, and so, you know, I went there because I wanted to study physics, as I mentioned, and it has a great physics program. Um, and and I also, when I started there, was part of this leadership program called the President's Leadership Class, where I met incredible friends like Daniel Epstein, who, um, who I worked with at, in starting Unreasonable Institute, um, and who I learned a great deal from. And others like Vladimir Dubovsky, who was also one of the co-founders of Unreasonable Institute. And, um, you know, I, I remember talking to, to Vlad when... Um, one day when we were uh, attending a lecture by John Wood, who is a former Microsoft executive who wanted to start Room, for, room to Read. And after listening to his lecture, we went out to an Indian restaurant that we like to go to in Boulder. And we were moved by his story. And we were sort of like, what's our role? What are we going to do? You know, here we are in college. We're trying to find our way. But there is great injustice in the world and great suffering in the world. And so what can we do about it? And we were very honest with the fact that A, we had no idea, and B, even if we did have an idea, it wasn't clear that we were the right people to do anything about it. <laughs> we didn't have the skills, networks, credibility, experience, any of that stuff. And so we realized that maybe the best thing that we could do is learn. And so we came up with this idea right there on that April afternoon, you know, to go to India because my family lives there because I've been there many times. It might be a place where we could learn more about global poverty and, and, you know, be, through some kind of learning experience, try to find a role that we could play. And so we bought tickets pretty shortly after that lunch. And a month later we were on a plane for our summer break. And we went to India and um, we didn't really have a plan, but when we got to India, we started reaching out to nonprofit organizations all across the country and we traveled all across the country from the very southern tip to the northeastern part, visiting NGOs and slums and villages um, and, and government agencies and corporations to ask what is being done about the massive amount of poverty in this country. You know, there's 300 million people living in poverty in India, which is, in essence, the whole U.S. population living on a dollar a day or less there. Um, what can be done about it? And it was a, a very powerful experience because the hospitality we received was unbelievable. You know, we would reach out to these nonprofit organizations and they gladly welcomed us, fed us tea and biscuits, you know, bought us, bought us dosas, just South, South Indian delicacy and um, took us to the, to the fields where they did work to, to farms, to communities, to neighborhoods, put us on the backs of their motorcycles and drove us a hundred kilometers um, in order to, to speak to the people who are going through these challenges. And, you know, we learned something that for me was really inspiring and breakthrough, but I think is, is not surprising, especially today, which is that nobody wants to be rescued. Nobody is waiting for someone to save them. You know, people instead really have a sense of dignity and want to be in some way part of, the creation of their own future. And, um, and some of the best organizations that we visited were centering, you know, poor people themselves as experts in poverty who had the means to do something about it and, and resourcing them to do that more. Um, and, and so that sort of awakened me for the first time to the idea of entrepreneurship as being an interesting channel to address poverty, especially if we were supporting entrepreneurs who are coming from these communities themselves. And, um, 
And, uh, and so, you know, after that summer, I got a grant from the University of Colorado to go back to India and further deepen that research. And I learned a lot about self-help groups, which are, which are small groups of people um, in a village, for example, um, that, that come together and they pool their savings because each of them may not have enough capital to invest in starting a business, for example, but together they pool their capital and then they give it to one member of the group. And that one member of the group will go and buy a cow or they'll buy a sewing machine or they'll, they'll do something that equips them to start a business. And then, you know, they'll start selling milk or they start selling textiles. And over time, they make enough money to repay the loan to the group. And then the group allocates that money to the next person in the group. And they go on like this. And, and I learned that this was a practice happening all over India. And it was a way in which communities were lifting themselves out of poverty and, um, and sometimes, you know, using the money they were generating to justify larger bank loans and to start other development projects. And I also learned that this is an ancient practice. We have documented recordings of this kind of practice of the self-help group or in economics, it's called a Rotating Savings and Credit Association or ROSCA happening in 16th century Nigeria, happening all over the world. And so, you know, it was, it's, fast, it's fascinating to see the ingenuity of people navigating, you know, the circumstances that they're in. And so coming back from these experiences, I wound up speaking to Daniel, my very dear friend, who um, is quite a visionary and a brilliant individual. And um, he had been attending leadership programs in the Czech Republic um, and was interested to try that program himself in Colorado. And so he, he launched a pilot version called the Global Leadership Institute of that program in um, I think it was the summer of 2008 and, you know, the program went well, but coming out of it, he, he saw something powerful about entrepreneurship that he also wanted to try uh, something that was self-sustaining about the work needed to be included in, in this. Not, it wasn't just about developing leaders. It was about equipping those leaders to create work that could live on and endure. And so, you know, I got to learn a lot from him and, um, you know, he had, I think, a lot of the vision for what eventually became Unreasonable Institute that was, that was coming from the pilot that he ran with the Global Leadership Institute. And so, um, though initially, you know, he had in invited me to get involved and I originally declined <laughs> um, uh, after not getting a Fulbright scholarship, which I applied for to do further research in India and further investigation, I told him I would join him and um he and i and tyler and vlad and our friend nikhil and a few others um came together and uh so too did the unreasonable institute shortly after that you know there's so much in that story and i really appreciate your going through it because there's so many details that i never knew before uh, but several of the things that struck me about it the first is the importance of agency in all of these things. As you put it, nobody wants to be rescued. And when you talk about the Roxas, it really strikes me how similar it is to what I hear about microfinance. And yet, mm -hmm. instead of microfinance, where you have the investor coming in from outside and providing capital, here, the people who form together into the group provide the capital themselves. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me there's a fundamental difference between those two models. Right. And that sense of agency is just so important. And the other thing is just this notion of the unreasonable institute. And I'll pause for a moment to note that I came in and became involved with the unreasonable institute as a mentor. And I think my first year was probably 2010. Mm. So I'd been involved with you guys for a long time. Mm. And what struck me about it at first was just the improbability of it all. Hmm. And so you have to remember, I think you can probably remember the, the 2010 operation. You guys were in, I think, a sorority house, was it? A, yeah. A frat house? Yeah. That first, the first couple of years, it was a, a sorority that was empty during the summer. And then we made the unfortunate switch in some ways to a fraternity house, which was available. It was also a, a really great house. But yes, sorority house in that first couple of years. So we're in this house. In Boulder, Colorado, you had entrepreneurs from around the world 
that had come to Boulder for a multi-week program. I can't remember whether it was five weeks, 10 weeks. It was pretty long at that point. And they'd actually had to raise money themselves to be a part of the program. This is not at that point like this well-endowed program with tons of corporate supporters or anything like that. This was a, we're doing it ourselves. Like the Roxa, we're gathering together with the resources we have and we're making it work. And the fact that you were able to pull it off was just frankly amazing to me and inspiring. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, I think that one of the things that I have learned is that uh, there's, there's no limit, I think, to what we are capable of together in relationship and in community. And, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to know who to credit for, for work like this. You know, if, if we think about, I, I think about a gardener, you know, and um, I think it's interesting that, like who, who gets the credit for the work of, of gardening? Um, because most of the work is probably not done by the gardener. Most of the work is done by the plants <laughs> who are growing and producing food and who are converting carbon dioxide or oxygen into carbon dioxide and pulling in sunlight. And there are all these conditions that are necessary. And the gardener can help create those conditions, you know, um, but that's the extent of her role. Um, you know, I think, and so it's, it's, it's fascinating though, what can emerge when you do pay attention to creating certain conditions. And I think for human beings, a really special set of conditions is time and space and, and intention to connect and have relationship with each other. And I think, um, and learning, you know, and I think those are really important conditions that we, I, I mean, at first we didn't, we weren't particularly intentional about, <laughs> we got more intentional over time. Um, but you know, it really taught me what, what can happen when people offer each other time and space. And you, Chris, for instance, as a mentor, that was the ask we made of you. Will you come here? Will you be in this humble dwelling, <laughs> an, empty, an empty sorority house and, and, and live and there and like shower there and brush your teeth there, you know, and also offer your time and your, and your space and your wisdom and your stories to these entrepreneurs who have ideas and, and that, that's kind of amazing that you were willing to do that and that each person who showed up was willing to do that. I think that's where the magic really emerged. Well, a, a big part of that is that gardener metaphor that you laid out because what the gardener is doing at that point is acting as the catalyst. Mm-hmm. So, and the same thing holds true for people who self-organize in a Roxa or whatever. Most of us have a lot that we can give to the world skills, experiences, want to give back, want to help out, have the right intentions. Mm. But the catalyst that figures out how to organize things together, figures Mm -hmm. out how to package and otherwise make it easy for people to say yes, Mm. that catalyst has such a huge impact. And just think about the impact it's had for me. Uh, I, at that point in time, the reason I said yes, a, a friend of mine, and I can't even remember which one, had told me about the program. Mm. And I think I spoke to you or Daniel over the telephone and he mm. said, yes, by all means, we'd love to have you come out. And as a result of that, that one decision to just call and then come out for this program, it's now been a decade that we've known each other. We've been a part of this overall cause. And it's provided so many great things to me. Selfishly, mm-hmm. it's been a great experience for me, a peak experience. And I've always described it to people, and I do this almost every time that I'm gathered together as part of Uncharted, which is what Unreasonable Institute is now called. And I tell people that the reason I do this is to refill the tank of the soul. Yes, I want to help others. Those mm-hmm. are all great. But those are all part of the process of refilling the tank of the soul. And it's something that helps me have the energy and the enthusiasm to go on with life and helping others throughout the rest of the year when I'm not around the folks from Unreasonable Institute slash Uncharted. Mm. I'm so glad to hear that, Chris. I mean, you've been such an integral part of the community, and I know that people have felt that way connecting with you. So it makes me happy to hear that. (laughs) Now, a couple of questions about those ancient sorority and frat house days just because (laughs) how do 
did it happen that you guys said, let's get a sorority house? I mean, yeah. I, where does that come from? Yeah. Well, the idea was, was Daniel's, um, we, you know, we didn't have any resources. So when we were starting the organization, you know, we were in our early twenties. I, I was 22 and Daniel, I think was 23. Tyler was 24. You know, Vlad was like 23, you know, and, um, so we didn't have any experience, really practical experience, um, and we didn't have a network. We didn't have money. You know, we didn't have a lot of resources that are pretty useful when you're starting things. <laughs> and so the 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 advantage of that, and Daniel is really good at this, is as as sort of not letting that stop you. Really seeing the possibility, even without um, without having without owning it, without having control over it, and so. A question was, well, is there any place that we could host all of these people that is just available or free? And, and of course, during the summertime, you know, sororities are empty, people are on college break. And so um, Tyler and Daniel went and spoke to a variety of, of places, many of whom declined to host this program. But uh, one of one of which said, "Yeah, we'll do it." And they they were willing to to do it for a fee, and we wound up paying. I think in that first year it was about eleven thousand dollars. Which, if you think about what it means to have a, a a huge house for three months that can that can accommodate about fifty people, is an extremely generous deal. <laughs> uh, I would um, say so. Yeah, and so and so we were able to get that, and. Um, you know, like you mentioned in that first year, I mean, we, we selected 25 entrepreneurs and because we didn't have any funding, um, this was right around the time that crowdfunding was becoming a thing and Kickstarter had just showed up and we approached Kickstarter and asked them if we could partner with them and they said no. And so we wound up creating our own crowdfunding platform, um, that Vlad was really instrumental in building and, um, and that, that, platform was where we where the entrepreneurs who were participating would raise the $6,500 that it cost to attend the program which was our first revenue and so that brought in about 160k 11,000 of which went to um, to paying for this for this space for us to accommodate everyone in and it was a humble space you know it wasn't glamorous and glitzy um, but you know it was it was in decent shape but it was very powerful because it gave us a common space to spend time together and a human environment to spend time together. And, and though entrepreneurs were in workshops and spending time with mentors like you and, and like Paul Polak, uh, who recently passed away, but who has been such a source of inspiration for a lot of us and helped bring about 25 million people out of poverty. Um, and, you know, people like, People like Hunter Lovins, who's a Time Magazine hero of the planet, has done such important work around climate advocacy. You know, these mentors would show up and they would eat breakfast with our entrepreneurs and they would, in that house, and they would play volleyball with those entrepreneurs and they would go for hikes together. And of course, they'd have one-on-one -on -one meetings and review budgets and do all of these different pieces. But the point is, it was an environment for, you know, whole human beings um, it wasn't a corporate boardroom type setting. And I think because of that, people built powerful relationships and it led to a sense of powerful community uh, that was really special about, about the program. Now, some of my friends, uh, I, not all of whom I knew at the time, who've become involved as longtime mentors are folks like Pascal Finette and Tom Chi, all of whom are really Silicon Valley types. How did we end up going from Silicon Valley to Boulder, Colorado. What was the original connection? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Maybe it's a better question for you, Chris. I mean, how, how did you make the decision? You're in Palo Alto and you had this illustrious Silicon Valley career. So how did, how did you find yourself coming to a sorority house in Boulder run by a couple of 20-somethings who had relatively no idea what they were doing. <laughs> well, fortunately, nobody really told me all the details about the sorority house before I came. Got it. So Got it. I, okay. I just, I just came in. I didn't realize exactly what I was in for, which is probably okay. for the best. <laughs> but the reason, the reason I came was fairly straightforward. I do believe it's really important to give back 
and I donate my time to various things because uh, I try to find things which really line up with my strengths. Uh, the common statement I make is, listen, if I were to volunteer for Habitat for Humanity, humanity would be the loser because I <laughs> assure you I'm a terrible carpenter. If I help build something, it would be much more likely to collapse. There's no sense in taking someone like me and saying, hey, or swing a hammer because I'm bad at it. And mm. instead, I should be doing what I'm good at, the thing that I really focus my time on, which is helping entrepreneurs accelerate their progress and have an even greater impact. And so I do that for a living here in Silicon Valley, but I wanted to do it for people who are actually having an impact in the world. And regardless of how people believe that entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are changing the world, they don't have the same direct social impact that you can really see in the kinds of businesses that are going through Unreasonable Institute or Uncharted. And that's the reason why I said yes. Mm. Got it. So we, we pulled the wool over your eyes. We left some information out, some key information out. But ultimately, you know, there was a chance for you to, to use your gifts in support yes. of others. Now, to be fair, uh, I think that people have decided once I was on the inside that they were going to be a little more upfront with me. So uh -huh. I remember, do you recall the girl effect accelerator that uh -huh. Nike held? Yes. For that one, I think it was Daniel in this case who called me up and said, hey, we were doing this thing. It's kind of close to where you are. Would you like to do it? I said, yes. He's like, you know, we've got a couple of options for you. Uh, we have these great tents that people are staying in. And of course, <laughs> if you really want, you could stay inside a hotel room. And I was like, hotel room. He's like, the tents are really good. People love the tents. It's a great experience. I'm like, hotel room. <laughs> you know what you want chris that's great i'm glad uh, but, i'm glad that yeah but Go i ahead. did enjoy actually the sorority house mainly because it brought back flashbacks of being a college undergraduate myself mm -hmm. like it had been so long i was like wow now i remember what it's like to sleep on a crappy twin bed Wow. Now I remember what it's like to be trying to get to sleep and hear a party thumping away down the street. And I'm like, oh, oh my, my God, I'm having flashbacks. It's like PTSD. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it was a great experience. And the reason I call it a peak experience is I would tell people, you know, it's one of the few experiences I have where it reminds me of back when I was a freshman at Stanford. And that sense of possibility, that sense of enthusiasm, that sense of community. And that's why I keep coming back. So let's fast forward a little bit. We talked a lot about the Unreasonable Institute. It changed its name to Uncharted in 2017, still going strong. I want to just read off some of the statistics straight from the Uncharted website at uncharted.org because you're still a board member there. It says right, that... Correct. Uncharted has helped social entrepreneurs raise $252 million, create impact in 96 countries, and benefit 37 million lives around the world. How do you feel when I read off statistics like that? <laughs> well, so it's interesting. I mean, I think, I think in our early days, you know, I would have felt really happy and excited to hear these kinds of statistics. I think there, to these days, I don't, they don't, it doesn't really evoke a lot for me. And it's not, it's not because this doesn't mean something. It's not because it's, this is totally um, meaningless information. It's, it's powerful. And I'm really proud of the work that Uncharted has done and the community has done and, you know, and, and that and Unreasonable has done. Um, I think, I think a lot of my, you know, and this is the, this is the point of, you know, you know, trying something and learning from it and having this particular idea about like what is useful and needed in the world and, and, and then, and having a hypothesis and then putting that into the world and then getting feedback about what is actually needed. And I guess, I guess what I mean by all that, which is pretty vague is, you know, I think this is a vanity metric. These are, these are metrics that are, that are compelling and exciting and we've chosen them partly because they are compelling and exciting and they do offer some kind of glimpse into the scale and the scope of this work, but it, it, you know, it's, it is a collective effort, right? Uncharted is, is, has been a part of the journey of the, the several hundred ventures that have come through 
and it's them that have done this work. And, and, and so that's, that's powerful. Also though, you know, there's, it's really difficult to measure impact. It's really difficult to, to tell a true story of what, what is different in the world now. And, and, you know, I mean, if you're, if you want me to, I can, I can tell you some of the questions that I left with and some of the questioning that I have done about some of the approaches that we have tried and attempted. Um, and I think, I think, um, so I guess, I guess to answer your question very directly, when you read those statistics, I feel a mixture of, you know, appreciation for something that I've gotten to be a part of, which is meaningful and powerful and, 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 it, it teaches me what's possible in the world. It reminds me like that, that so much is possible. And it also tells me how far we need to travel as a society to look at statistics like these and see their limitations and see, you know, n not let the story end with the reading of these statistics, but do further digging and inquiry to understand what they truly mean and what change is actually materializing in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it, those are some of the things it brings up. Now I'm really intrigued because <laughs> you meant you say is, oh, well, you know, I could talk about that. I absolutely want you to talk about that. I think that this is a core issue that exists throughout the social impact world when we think about donors and the system that exists there and what is actually being accomplished. I'm curious, what were the questions that came up for you which questions remain unanswered? Are there answers that you have found for some of the questions? Yeah, lots of questions remain unanswered um, for sure. But one thing that I observed in our work was, okay, so we're working with these social entrepreneurs and they're coming from all over the world and they're doing beautiful things. They're coming, they're, the, the hearts of these social entrepreneurs are really beautiful and they're so, you know, they're, they're so caring. They're people who are really trying to devote their careers and life trajectories to the service of other people. Um, and they're sharp and they're hardworking and they, you know, and, and we selected them for some of those attributes. Um, and there's a limitation to how much they can accomplish. And, and of course that's true for any human being, but you know, there's, there's one particular entrepreneur whose story really moved me. And it's the story of Naveen Kumar, who's an entrepreneur from Hyderabad in Andhra Pradesh in India. And Naveen was doing work to bring affordable preschool education to children who live in the slums of Hyderabad and all across India. And he built a model that was very powerful. It, it was a very high quality program that, you know, had, had proven effective in, in achieving strong results for young children and, it cost $8 a month. And despite that fact, which made it very affordable to even low income families, it uh, was a profitable model. And he had the means to grow and scale this work as a consequence. So we had this nucleus, both of effective results and impact and also profitability. And when you have that, you know, at least in the social entrepreneur paradigm, you know, you have something that can serve a lot of people that can scale. And so I remember asking him when he came to, through our program in 2013, Naveen, this is amazing. You've got 25 schools. What about 250? What about 2,500 and, and beyond? Because there are so many children who are in need of what you're, you're creating. And he said, yes, you know, true. It, it's something that we want to do. But one of the big limitations that we face is attendance. I was like, huh, attendance? But I thought you addressed this affordability issue. Like what else is keeping students from coming to these schools? And he said, oh, diarrhea. Um, and a lot of waterborne diseases and, you know, malaria and a lot of parents stop sending girls because they don't think it's valuable for them to get an education. And a lot of parents keep their, their children home, um, various days in order to do work, even at a young age of four or five years old. And, and so what, what he was sort of helping me understand was there's a variety of issues that are at play. There's a variety of, of things that are going on. And if Naveen cares about delivering education to this population, it, it may not be that education is something that is wholly accessible to this population if it does not also have access to clean drinking water, to abundant livelihood opportunities, if there's not a mindset that of, in the culture that values the education of girls and women equally to, to that of boys and men. 
in, in other words, it says Audre Lorde put it, we do not lead single issue lives. And, and a lot of the work of entrepreneurs, and this is true in the world of business in general, is often a single issue um, intervention. That's, that's the way that we think about quote unquote problem solving very often. And, you know, it's not for a bad reason. I mean, it's, it's, it takes a lot of work to create a really effective education model, which Naveen had built. It takes focus. It takes, it takes precision. And uh, if he were to also take on all these other challenges, it would potentially dilute his efforts. And so, you know, one of the ways that in, in other places, um, this is addressed is, you know, you have, you have a marketplace where there are many businesses and they're, they're all doing these things in, you know, naturally. And so you do have businesses that are delivering clean water and you do have businesses that are, are addressing healthcare and, and other, and creating jobs, you know, alongside an education um, delivery model. Um, but that was, that was an interesting weakness of, of the model. So it's true that, you know, however many people Naveen reached, you know, he was reaching them with education, but, you know, are their lives going to be changing? Um, if they also don't get access to the clean drinking water, to the, to the cultural shifts, to the livelihood opportunities that really mean transformation for them. And so what those numbers that you read, Chris, don't reveal is what is, you know, these are the people who have been reached in some fashion, but what is the transformation in their lives after these interventions have been, have been in place? And so that's one, that's one question. How can we, how can we address the holistic needs of human beings who, who have a range of needs, who don't lead single issue lives? So that's, that's one question. A second question is, why is it that again and again, the same people in the same places face the same challenges. There's an economist, Raj Chetty, who's done his work mostly in the United States and uh, who runs something called the Opportunity uh, Zone Project. And, and, and his, his work has taken census data and IRS tax data and looked at the life prospects of people all across the US by neighborhood, by zip code. And he's shown that he can predict very reliably how much people will make based on the zip code in which they live and are born. And that's in the United States. That's in the country that my parents immigrated to because of the promise of the American dream, the promise of upward mobility. But what we're seeing is that the United States is not delivering upward mobility. What we're seeing is that if you're Black, if you're Latino, if your parents were poor, you are also likely to be poor. And, and so what the work that we did did not address as well is power structures. Is, mm. is some of these larger arches and dynamics and, and, and in society, these grooves that we have created that repeat patterns again and again for particular populations. And so that, that's an unanswered question. And so, you know, one thing that's very interesting about social entrepreneurship, and, and it's a limitation of social entrepreneurship, is that many of the people who do the work of social entrepreneurships, despite the experience that I had in India, doing research about how villagers are coming up with their own solutions. Most of the social enterprises that we supported, though we did have some of those organizations that, you know, the entrepreneur had lived experience with the problem that they were trying to solve. Most of these solutions are coming from people uh, in positions of privilege, which is not inherently bad, but, but there's something about this, that the promise of, of, of capitalism, the promise of like, you know, of making money um, while also addressing something like poverty, that is really nice for uh, for for the winners of our society, for the people who already believe in capitalism, but for the people whom capitalism has left behind and who it's failed, is social entrepreneurship actually addressing addressing their needs? Because is it addressing the structures? Is it actually changing? how power is set up. And that, this is an, an argument that Anand Giridharadas makes in um, Winners Take All, um, which is that there's a deep limitation to social entrepreneurship because it doesn't address this component of, of the world. And so that's an unanswered question by the work that we have done. And so I'm proud of it. I, I, I feel like we have done something that I still am proud of and that I've learned a great deal from. And I can hold that while also holding the limitation of the work that we have done. And I know I'm really proud now of the team at Uncharted 
because under the leadership of Banks and the rest of the team there, Banks Benitez, they've really been trying to take on these issues and trying to take on how do we create a holistic model? How can we build movements of entrepreneurs that are collectively addressing the various needs of a given population? How do we, how do we co-author solutions alongside people who are facing economic and social challenges and in that way upend power structures? They're bringing attention to some of those components that we didn't really think about or address in our early days with the organization um, that, that now have become much more alive questions for me in the work that I'm trying to do now. And I really appreciate those questions. Uh, a couple of thoughts. The first is just to reinforce Banks Benitez is an awesome leader for Uncharted. I love that guy so much. He's been a great successor to carry on the work that you've done. And as you put it, improve it and, and change the focus and address some of these issues. So uh, again, a great, great person. People should definitely get a chance to meet if they ever can. In terms of those unanswered questions. I agree. I mean, I, I sense that whenever I go and I'm doing something social impact related, I almost feel like there is a, as Dwight Eisenhower put it, a military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. There is a social impact industrial complex mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, oh, well, we're going to recruit social entrepreneurs. Well, let's get someone who is an Ashoka fellow. Mm-hmm. Right? There's the same sort of waypoints that these various entrepreneurs go to. And the other part of it is they have a very similar profile. The entrepreneurs, which is part of, you know, again, the, the inherent structures and biases of the world. So many of these entrepreneurs have educations from elite Western educational institutions mm -hmm. that come from a relatively wealthier background. Mm -hmm. uh, even if they are originally or their parents or their family are originally from the region of the world they're trying to help, they have spent their time in the United States and quite possibly live in the United States uh, when they're not out in the field, so to speak. And this is a real issue. Uh, it gets back to that issue of agency, going back to the concept of the Roxa, which is, you know, people don't want to be rescued. Mm -hmm. The ideal is for them to take part in shaping their own future. Everyone wants to be a part of shaping their own future. Everyone wants to feel the agency and efficacy of shaping that future. Mm -hmm. And social impact solutions that don't address those are not going to have the same impact, right? Just providing an improvement to the material well-being is so important, absolutely mm -hmm. important, but doesn't get to creating that sustainable impact of actually changing what people feel they're capable of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, these, are, these are great points. And, you know, and I, think, and I think that that's why increasingly a question that I have is about what's my role as a person of privilege. And I do have a role. You know, I think all of us have a role. Um, and, and, you know, one of, one of the questions that I have is how can I play a background role you know, as, as, as power, you know, it become, as, as, as we try to share power, as, as we try to give power to those who currently don't have it. And, you know, Anand Giridhar Das argues in Winners Take All that change doesn't happen without sacrifice. And one of the, one of the things that sounds really nice about social entrepreneurship is the idea of the win-win, you know, we make money and we make impact. We, we are, increasing our bottom line and we're solving poverty. And I think, I'm not saying that's impossible, but I do think that there are some limitations to that paradigm because if we think about it, because, you know, if, if you are making money, you're taking advantage of the structures where you're rewarded, you're creating value for a payer, generally speaking, that has the money to pay. And there, there aren't a lot of clean drinking water money plays for example, there aren't a lot of elderly care money plays. There aren't a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of money to be made in getting solar and, and uh, renewable energy and electricity to different parts of the world. You know, somehow there are a lot of social entrepreneurs who are finding a way there. But clean drinking water, for example, because it's such a basic need and because the people who currently don't have it are likely to be very poor, they're hard, they're hard payer market. And so generally, in that group, you've got to have somebody else who is the payer 
And then you're, you wind up organizing, you know, directing a, the, much of your attention to making sure that that payer is well served. And, and really the, the main model that we've seen of a, a really successful clean drinking water effort that winds up working is not one that makes money. It's public. It's a, it's a publicly run utility. And, and that's not, it's not a profitable endeavor. You know what I mean? And so I guess there, the, the point is that there's, there's a usefulness to social entrepreneurship. It's not like we should just discard it. There's wisdom, there's courage, there's insight, there's beauty in it. And we can't make the mistake. I have definitely done this of saying, this is it. This is the, the silver bullet. This is going to be, this is going to solve all of our problems, you know? And, you know, Anand Giridharadas again argues really beautifully, like real change requires sacrifice. And he says, for example, if, if we're going to live in a society where women are equal to men, which is tragically not the society that we live in today, even yet, um, despite what our law says, of course, um, it's going to require that men who previously had a monopoly on decision-making share that decision-making with women. So in, a, in, our, in our original constitution, women could not vote. And that meant that all of our political decisions were made by men. And in order for women to be included in that, men have to relinquish their monopoly their, 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 on, on that ability. And in the same way, if black people are to be equal in our society, to white people. White people need to relinquish the monopoly they have on decision-making and power and control that they mostly currently do have. And so that's a really powerful point. And it's not something that we usually talk about in the narrative of social entrepreneurship, which is that there may be sacrifice here. You know, there may be, there may be a loss that those of us who are in power and privilege experience if we're really going to share this responsibility of decision-making and of authorship of what our society should look like with other people. And I think, I think we have to, we have to increasingly be willing to do that if we're going to create that more equitable world, you know, um, we have to increasingly be willing to step aside from positions of power and, and ask ourselves, how are we distributing power? How are we giving power away? How are we sharing power? I think that's really an important question to continue asking. And it's not one that I have answered, but it's one, a question that I, I keep trying to ask right now. And I do think that there is a meta point here, which ties into that notion of power, which ties into the notion of structural change, which is that social impact to date has to some extent been a bit like the man who loses his keys and searches for them under the streetlight rather than over in the darkness where the keys were lost. And mm. there's these things that are just so difficult, right? In social impact, so often the thing is, well, we're going to figure a way to go around the government. Mm -hmm. We're going to figure a way to go around the current power structures because it's just so hard to change them. What that means is that the solutions we produce are outside the system and therefore do not actually change the system. Mm. It may indirectly put some pressure on the system, but they don't get into actually changing the system. Similarly, we stay out of the political and policy-making side because mm. it's very difficult to have an impact there. They're entrenched interests. With so much money at stake, it's hard to make those changes. Mm -hmm. And yet, without the structural change, without doing those things that are hard, without saying we are going to have to not just build new edifices on top of the foundation that already exists, the foundation that we know has inequities built into it, but rather we need to actually break down that foundation and build a new one and do the hard work because it means people who say they want things to be fair are going to have to lose something. And it may be fair for them to lose it, but they're not going to say, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. And I think, I think part of that work, Chris, is helping people understand that actually there is greater liberty on the other side of an imbalanced power structure. That, and this is something that Bell Hooks talks about. Men need feminism too. Men are also oppressed by the patriarchy. And it's hard to understand that point, you know, but something Plato says in the Republic is that the most oppressed person in any civilization is the tyrant. Why? Because the tyrant doesn't really know if, if he is loved or cared about 
for any other reason than his power and his wealth. And when you take that power away from him, he's terrified that he's unlovable, that he's unworthy, that he won't belong. And so it's, 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 there's an impression that people in power face of the, the compulsion to keep their power. And that is, that is a tyranny. You know, and, 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 so and Socrates, I mean, the character Socrates in, in the Republic, through, you know, it's really Plato speaking here, um, argues that the, the, on the only people who really create justice are those with harmonious souls. When we have nothing to defend, when we're not afraid of losing power or sharing power or giving it away, we get to experience harmony and we get to create a more equitable society. And I think, I think that's, that's part of the work that has to be done here is the realization that in the release of the, the tight fistedness of power, there is some liberty there. There is a gift, there's a, there's a release. And I think, I think that's part of the work that we have to do. We see Donald Trump and his, you know, how he's holding so tightly onto power. We see our political process, how stressful it is. You know, I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine who works, who worked on a presidential campaign and she was describing how, how she didn't have time to eat, how she didn't have time to sleep. And when, when our government is run in this fashion, how can people govern? How can people pay attention? How can people entertain questions, entertain ways of doing things differently? You know, when there is no spaciousness to even eat, let alone think, let alone consider other possibilities. And why is it there this like tremendous urgency? Because there is such a struggle for power. And I mean, I'm not saying this is the answer. I'm, I don't want to oversimplify. I'm, and I don't have expertise here, but my suspicion is at least that there's, there's something about our relationship to power that is really oppressing us, especially those of us who do have power. And I think there's, there's a liberation that exists if we can release gently that strong desire for power. I will say that one of the things I experienced myself is that one of the reasons why I do work with Uncharted and other places like that is because the focus is on what I can give them in the moment. Mm -hmm. The focus is not on my writing a check. The focus is not on what I'm going to be able to do for them. The focus is on what I can do in the moment to help an entrepreneur understand more, unlock a problem, do something else. But that living in the moment and really focused on something that authentically comes from the self, expertise, advice, as opposed to sort of the externalities of money or power, that feels really good. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something about practicing presence that's really powerful. And each of us, each of us can do that. You know, that's actually one of the challenges of, of the idea of scale. One of, the, one of the questions that we were obsessed with in our early days of Unreasonable Institute, and this, I, I really brought this, like, and I, I look back on it as a, a shortcoming of how I was thinking, was how does this scale? How does this reach a million people or more? And it's not, it's not a just wholly discardable question, again, like if there's something interesting there. And how much do we miss that is really necessary and essential in just in, 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 in discarding anything except that work which goes to tremendous scale? You know, and you know, you're the author of Blitz Scaling, and so I'm interested to hear your take on this, Chris. Um, but I think I think you doing that work in the present moment, it may not scale. You being there for that entrepreneur, maybe they need emotional support, maybe they need to share stories. I remember you had a conversation with Paseka Lesto Long from South Africa, in which in which he didn't ask you any questions. He didn't say, Chris, like give me your advice. He's just like, Chris, I just want to get to know you. Let's connect. Let's build a, a, a relationship. And you were struck by that. And the two of you went on a walk and just got to have a conversation and, and talk to each other. Um, and, and I think there's something about that that's really, really powerful. And, and, and not only is it powerful, it's, it's mysterious. We don't understand the effects of that. And if I don't know how much time we have left on this podcast, but can I tell you a small story? Absolutely. Um, so one of my favorite writers is Atul Gawande, and um, he, he's running the large J.P. Morgan Chase, Amazon, you know, healthcare conglomerate. He's a, a surgeon. He's, you know, he's a very well-respected leader in the healthcare field. And he wrote an article several years ago, I think in 2013, 
about how innovation scales in healthcare. It's called Slow Ideas. And um, he talks about the difference between the spread of anesthesia and the spread of antiseptics. And he says that, you know, anesthesia was a game changer. Both of these innovations were game changers in healthcare. Um, and anesthesia took four months to go from a whisper in a corner of England to every corner of the world. And, and, and it did it because before anesthesia, surgery was something that people never wanted to do because surgery was you hold, four, four grown men hold down a patient who is, who's given like a carrot or a potato to bite into. And the surgeon digs a scalpel into them and they're yelling and screaming. You know, that was surgery before anesthesia. And it was a violent process. It was, it was, it, it often resulted in death. It didn't work very well. So it was just the whole, this whole world of, of medicine that was relatively inaccessible to us. And after anesthesia, surgery suddenly became possible because you got a comatose patient. And so, so this innovation spread so fast, Atul Gawande argues, predominantly because it served the people in power, doctors in this particular case, and the change was so visible. It was so clear the difference before and after anesthesia. And if you contrast that to antiseptics, antiseptics, which arguably are the most important innovation that we have ever come up with in healthcare, that have saved more lives than anything else that we have done, because infection is the number one killer of people um, over, over all human history. Uh, antiseptics took 30 years to gain mainstream adoption compared to the four months of, of anesthesia. Why? It's because doctor, it made the life of doctors much harder to have to wash their hands, sterilize all their instruments, you know, and do all that 30 times a day. As the group in power, they were inconvenienced by this, by this shift in practice. And second, you cannot see the difference between a sterile instrument or clean hands and unclean hands and an unsterile instrument. The lack of visibility made it very slow. So how did how did anesthesia gain widespread adoption? Atul Gawande argues it was through friendship, through one-on-one -on -one conversations, through mentorship. You know, one doctor says to another, hey, I tried this out. It really made a big difference. You should try it through a trusted source. And that was much slower, but he argued this is actually how some of the most important changes in human history have happened. Not in a way that is apparent how they scale, but one-on-one, -on -one. the thesis of the article is people talking to people is how the world's standards change. And so there's something about this human relationship, one-on-one -on -one work that's really critical. And if you look at the gay rights movement, which is ongoing, of course, um, you know, at the Stonewall Inn in New York City, a group, of, a group of people who identified as homosexual came together and they said, it's not safe for us to be who we are. How are we going to make this better? And this was over 50 years ago. And, and, and they decided to come out, to just be honest about their identity. Um, and, and that was a dangerous decision. Some of them died. They were killed. They faced violence. Some of them were ostracized from their families and their communities uh, because they identified as gay. But over time, what happened was people went to the ballot box and they went through their daily lives realizing that someone they knew, their son, their daughter, their friend, their nephew, their cousin, identified as gay. And slowly over the course of 50 years, you know, Joe Biden says he supports gay marriage and then Barack Obama does and Supreme Court rules that it is legal. And it was a 50 year process, but it was through friendship and tremendous bravery and courage, you know, that this decision was made and the lives of so many people were changed. And so all I'm trying to say here is that, is that this is a story, I think, that illustrates how important it is to think about power structures, to think about sacrifice, and to think about the limitations of social entrepreneurship and the idea of this must scale fast as we think about some of the biggest changes that we need to make in society. Yes, and I do think that one of the things that happens is in our society, we fetishize efficiency, we fetishize all these different things, and frankly, we don't spend enough time saying, you know what, it is okay to do things that don't scale. Sometimes you do things because you want to do them. Sometimes doing things you want to do helps refill your soul so you can take up the other important work that maybe is still unfinished. 
And so I do think that people put far too much emphasis on everything has to have a purpose. They need to provide some slack in the system to be able to try things. Because if you were to go ahead, and, and this is something I say about venture capital, I tell people, if you said no to every investment that was presented to you, you would be right 95% of the time, and you would also <laughs> add zero value to the world. Mm-hmm. We, ha- we can't mm-hmm. be afraid to do things that are suboptimal or to make a mistake here and there. Of course, we should try to limit that. There's no joy in, in making mistakes, but we shouldn't let our fear of making a mistake prevent us from actually trying something different. Yeah. Now, on that topic of trying something different, we still haven't talked about gather for. So maybe you can talk a little bit about gather for to sort of close it out because people have learned so much about you and learned so much about some of the issues you're wrestling with. And one of the things that you've done as a result of this is to start this new organization. Sure. Uh, so gather for is an organization that was born in response to this pandemic. And my hope is it endures beyond the pandemic, but you know, our goal is to make the neighborhood a social safety net. And all across the country, we're seeing people lose their jobs. We're seeing people face food insecurity. We're seeing people not able to meet their basic needs. And it's not as though the pandemic caused this. I mean, the pandemic probably poured gasoline on, on as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, slow burning fires that were already present all across the country, but it had exposed enormous gaps in the way that we have set up structures to take care of our citizens. And, um, and so back to those Roscas, back to those self-help groups, basically the idea of gather for is, can you organize neighbors to support each other in their most vulnerable moments and resource and equip them to do that in a way that's transformative. So we identify people who, have, who are going through job loss, facing food insecurity, and we wrap around them a support team of up to five people who are their neighbors, who live in the same communities that they do. And we equip that support team to journey with their neighbor unconditionally through the work of getting that neighbor back on their feet into a livelihood that's meaningful and that, and that compensates them well you know, into a position where they can put food on the table and take care of their kids, into a position where they have health care, into a position where they have digital connectivity, et cetera. And we resource that support team with a social worker coach, with a guidebook to support them, with training, with online tools, um, and with a variety of other things that they need to effectively support their neighbor in getting back on their feet. And that's the work that we're trying to do um, very locally at first, um, and if it can work, if there's a nucleus of something that is possible here, you know, perhaps it can exist in, in multiple places, but we're beginning with pilots in New York City. And so what you're doing is you're trying to serve that catalytic function of being able to help people, not just help themselves, but perhaps most importantly, help their neighbors to reconnect some of those lost connections that have been decaying over time. Well, I mean, that's definitely one way to put it. I would, I would say that, you know, maybe we're not playing a catalytic role. Maybe we are uncovering something that already exists or amplifying something that already exists. I was talking to someone named Danielle, who is a single mother of three who lives in Bed-Stuy and she, you know, her mother lives with her and has diabetes and, you know, she lost her job as a neighborhood cook. And, um, and she was thrust into a, a, a horrifying situation where she was not sure how to get her mother the medications that she needs and to feed her kids. Unfortunately, mutual aid groups like Beds Die Strong showed up and delivered groceries to her and helped her get medication for her mother. Um, and as this was going on, you know, she saw a neighbor of hers post on Facebook that, you know, because he's an elderly man, he's afraid to go outside in the time of COVID and go to the grocery store and he's hungry and he doesn't know what to do. And so she called him and she had zero dollars in her pocket, you know, but she, she said, Hey, I'm going to the grocery store. I'm going to get you whatever you need. You just tell me what you need. And he was reluctant to accept her help, but she convinced him to do so. And on the way she found a way, she figured out how to get a $40 voucher to buy some groceries for her neighbor, Norman. And the point that I'm making here is that this is happening. People are, 
trying to take care of each other, but what happens when Danielle is profoundly resourced to support Norman? What happens if we equip her to run a grocery delivery business or infrastructure in her community? That's, that's what we're trying to explore. And for people who want to get involved or otherwise help your efforts, what should they do? You can visit our website, gatherfor.org. Um, we're looking for volunteers. We're looking for social workers to help coach the uh, communities that we're supporting. Um, so you uh, check out our website and get in touch. You know, we think this work will include everyone, needs to include everyone. So please reach out to us um, via the website. Wonderful. Well, we're running out of time because I've taken up well over an hour of your time at this point. It's been fantastic. But I like to leave people with a personal note. And one of the things I believe is that during this time, this pandemic, which is very challenging for many of us, that it's important to remember the things that we actually enjoy and love. And so what I would ask of you is to share something where you've either discovered or rediscovered your love of it during the time of this pandemic. It could be anything from reconnecting with someone to a, a television show even, or a game that you've played, or what is something that you have discovered or rediscovered your love of during this time? Mm. I think a really simple answer is the humble walk, just going for a walk around the block. And I'm lucky that I live in a fairly natural setting. And so going for a walk also means connecting with nature, but I try to create the space for several walks over the course of the day. I don't take my phone with me. I don't try to do anything on those walks. Um, it's just a chance for spaciousness, for connecting to nature and the environment. Um, and I think having those moments of spaciousness in a time that seems extremely urgent has been a, a huge gift to me and a huge buoy to my happiness. So I've, I've really appreciated those. So on your walk, it sounds like you're not listening to a podcast while looking at your phone and reading a news article and tweeting at the same time. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Something that other people should try sometime. No, it's, it's just crazy enough to work. Teju, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. It really, really helps refill the tank of my soul to have this conversation. I am profoundly grateful for you. Thank you, Chris. I am so appreciative for you and your friendship over the years. So thanks for having me on the podcast. <laughs>